Hi, everyone. Welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Bradley Knight. As many of you know, he is the Director of Cardiac Electrophysiology at Northwestern University. He is a distinguished professor of cardiology at Northwestern University and has been the director of the Heart Rhythm Program at the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute since November of 2009. Dr. Knight and I get into a great conversation about what I really think is one of the best EP surgical programs uh, in the country going on right now. It's the CAST-AF meeting that's coming up here uh, just in a few weeks in August, so August 26th and 27th in Chicago, Illinois. And we talk a lot about how, um, how unique this, me- this meeting is, how special it is really to bring EPs and surgeons together and specifically talk about the therapeutics of atrial fibrillation that we're all kind of sorting through right now. And, you know, we talk a lot about this really exciting content that's in the CAST-AF meeting. We go over left atrial appendage devices. We go over PFA. We also touch on decaf and what this latest study means as far as our fields are concerned. And then we finish the conversation with a dialogue about what it's like to be a a trainee these days, you know, and specifically what it's like to be an EP trainee and what that looks like at Northwestern. So I had a great conversation with Dr. Knight. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Bradley Knight about the CAST-AF meeting and training at Northwestern University. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Min Kion Kui. Today, I'm super delighted to be speaking with Dr. Bradley Knight. He is the Director of Electrophysiology at the Distinguished Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. And what I'm super excited to have Dr. Knight on today is to really highlight what I think is honestly the best EP surgical arrhythmia meeting in the world going on right now. And I know that's that's a lot to say, but I truly believe it. I spoke to Dr. McCarthy, gosh, it's been a few months ago, and I told him the exact same thing. And that is the meeting taking place on August 26th and 27th, the CAST AF meeting in Chicago, Illinois. And for those who've not attended in years past, it's the catheter and surgical therapy meeting for the treatment of atrial fibrillation. So Dr. Knight, thanks for coming on the show. Good morning, Armin. Thank you for having me on All Things AFib. Awesome. So tell me how this started. I mean, four years ago, you had the idea of getting surgeons and EPs in the same room. That's kind of wild. <laughs> well, I think it, material, yeah, it is a unique meeting. I think we're quite proud of the fact that it's different than most AFib meetings. It's more different than most EP meetings. It's just focused on, on AF. It's probably different than a lot of surgical meetings by just focusing on AF. And it's most uh, unusual that we have surgeons, arrhythmia surgeons, and electrophysiologists coming together to talk about atrial fibrillation. And it's also very focused on therapeutics. There's very little talk about pathophysiology. And uh, we have a few introductory 
talks about epidemiology, et cetera, but it's very focused on therapeutics, particularly interventional therapeutics. But Pat McCarthy, who has really built the Bloom Cardiovascular Institute over the past couple decades and recruited Dr. Jim Cox to come here. So Dr. Cox, Dr. McCarthy, and I put together a program four years ago, and I think it really took off from there. It is our fourth annual meeting. The first one was all in person. The second one during COVID was all virtual. The third one was more of a hybrid. And this year, we're expecting another hybrid type meeting, although we're hoping to have most of the speakers in person in Chicago on August 26th and 27th. Absolutely. And it's quite the spectrum of topics. I mean, when I was looking at this year, you know, every year, but this year in in particular, you know, you're covering everything from from PFA to AI to wearables to the most recent left atrial devices, surgical endocardial ablation. I mean, there's everything on this agenda. Well, we want it to be an update for people who are practicing an EP or doing arrhythmia surgery that annually they can come and hear great speakers, both from Northwestern and from outside our institution. We have some outstanding international speakers this year. And I'm hopeful that most practicing electrophysiologists anywhere around the world who can join virtually will find this a valuable meeting as an update covering all the topics that you just mentioned. And what's awesome is it's not dragged over three or four days. It's really like a day and a half of intense, high yield content that, I mean, you spend a Friday and a Saturday and I've always felt like I walk away from this meeting and I'm going back to my practice Monday and I'm changing something that, I've, that I'm doing in my practice. Well, I think expectations for meetings have changed. We thought a lot about how to do this. We're going to have it just on Friday afternoon and all day Saturday. It gives people an extra day on the weekend. It gives people the chance to maybe do some practice or travel in the morning before the meeting starts. So yes, we are whittling it down now to a day and a half meeting. It's very concentrated. Talks are usually 10 to 15 minutes long, but we've embedded in the meeting a lot of time for discussion. In the past and at many meetings, you'll hear six, seven presentations, and then the panel will get together and talk. And particularly if they're Joining virtually, it's not always the chance or the opportunity for each speaker to really have a reasonable conversation. So this year, after each three lectures and presentations, we get together and and have a discussion. Another three lectures within the same session, we'll have another discussion. And then at the end, we'll have a panel discussion. So a lot more time built in for conversation. Yeah, because there's nothing more frustrating than you go to a meeting. Everyone presents this really great content. There's a whole line at the microphone for questions. And then they say, well, we only have time for one question. (laughs) And then everyone's like, what the heck? You kind of want to get into all that kind of nitty gritty detail about the clinical practice that comes with the presentation. Yeah, allow people to get answered questions answered. It forces people to be very honest. They can't just give a presentation and walk away. And if you go to meetings, I think the people who are attending value mostly is a conversation and the discussion. It also is a useful buffer because it's always a challenge to stay on time. Oh, so yeah. with pre-recorded talks, that's easy. But when people give live presentations, they have to be on time. So building in a lot of time for discussion allows the meeting not to go over. So people should, who attend, expect we're going to be done on time and give them the evening to spend some time in Chicago. 
Absolutely. Very cool. Now, I have to ask, I mean, you talked about this earlier with Dr. Cox, Dr. McCarthy. Also, Susan Kim is on the as one of the course directors, as is yeah. Rod Passman. We added them two years ago to the program. So we have five program directors. And yes, our, my colleagues, Dr. Susan Kim and Rod Passman are part of the organizing program. Is that how you practice at Northwestern? Is there like this collaborative team AF sense to the program? I mean, is, it, is that what this meeting kind of came out of? Like, were you guys doing this together five, six, seven years ago? And then you said, you know what, we need to present to the world kind of our philosophy of treating AFib where, where we really treat it as a team. Is that something that's been going on at Northwestern for a that while is now? One, That is one driver. I'd say it probably comes from three sources. One is that we have worked in collaboration with our surgical partners. Andre Chirilla is probably our strongest or most common colleague who's doing most of our TT maze procedures and convergent procedures and works with us. Dr. Chirilla also scrubs in with us for all lead extractions that are they're high risk in the hybrid OR. So we've always had a partnership between the EP group and the cardiac surgical group. So that's, that's one thing that I think drove a lot of this. The second thing is that I think Dr. Cox really comes from a day when that partnership was critical. It was an earlier time when I think people had more availability to dedicate to basic research and spend a lot of time mapping in the animal lab and in the operating room and really understanding the basic mechanisms of atrial fibrillation. And he spent a lot of time with electrophysiologists. And when I spend time with uh, Dr. Jim Cox, it's just really a, a treat. He really has a passion for electrophysiology uh, that's not universal amongst all cardiac surgeons and certainly not amongst all cardiologists. So that, I think, is a second driver. But I think the third driver was really to encourage this. A meeting like this promotes that type of partnership between the two groups. Yeah, absolutely. We've been lucky here where we now actually have clinic on the same days. And so we kind of get a, a little bit of this flavor every week where us as cardiac surgeons work with our EPs every Thursday in clinic. And so we, we run two separate clinics, but we're both there. And so if either of us sees a patient with, with complex AFib and we want to talk to each other, we do it right then and there in the hallway. And it's pretty common where we'll go into the EP patient's room or the EP will come into the surgery patient's room and we'll just, we'll start having this conversation, this dialogue together with the patient. Cause there are patients that are quite complex and you don't always quite have that black and white answer right there in clinic. And you definitely want to talk to your colleague to figure it out. Well, we try to provide that for patients. Sometimes patients come from far away and they come and see the electrophysiologist, but we have nine EP faculty. I would say seven who are full-time doing AF ablation. And there is almost always one of them in clinic and our surgical colleagues are always available. We often see patients who are scheduled to see one of us and we're not really sure why they're even there. They come through kind of a central phone phone room and they show up and they're, they'll show up with a convergent brochure and we, we weren't able to anticipate that. So part of that pathway that you're describing really requires having someone triage that patient. So we're very close to having a new patient coordinator triage patients with atrial fibrillation who have already seen a cardiologist and can anticipate what they're going to need when they show up so that we can have one of our cardiac surgical colleagues available to talk to that person when they arrive. Because it's quite frustrating when a patient shows up and they see the EP and you think they're a good candidate for surgery that they have to leave and come back. But we're all very flexible, even though it's a the big academic medical center, if 
we're scheduled to be in the EP lab that day and the patient needs to be seen that day, we can usually see patients between cases. Right. It kind of seems like we're we're following Taver, if you will, you know, kind of at, at the beginning with Taver, we all tried to figure out when and how to see patients together. Now there's more and more Taver clinics where both the surgeon and the cardiologist end up seeing the patient at the yeah. same time. And I almost feel like we're almost mimicking that system. We're getting more patient-centered. We're finding time to see patients together. And it's really following in that same line. A hot topic that I think probably over the last 12 to 18 months has been PFA. And I I know there's definitely talks on that at the conference. Can I, can I pick your brain about PFA? What are, what are your thoughts about PFA? So PFA is for, I'm sure all your listeners are aware, kind of an exciting new energy source to treat atrial fibrillation with the catheter ablation. The most common energy sources are radio frequency and cryo balloon. There's pros and cons of each of those. There is a laser balloon that's FDA approved, but irreversible electroporation is taking advantage of the fact you can deliver high voltages over very short periods of time cardially, at least if you're within contact of the tissue and get an irreversible ablation lesion. What makes this energy source exciting is number one, there's some specificity to cardiac tissue. Now, if you give enough energy to any tissue, you're going to necrose it, whether it's the phrenic nerve or the esophagus. But it seems that there have been energy sources that have been developed, so-called recipes and different pulse widths and different voltages over different periods of time that are more selective for atrial tissue than they are for the surrounding structures. So this ability to minimize collateral injury is very exciting. The other one is the speed. We participated in a pulse field ablation trial for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And when you see the pulmonary vein potential, typically we may do point by point radio frequency, you'll see kind of a segmental and then finally isolation of the pulmonary vein. When you do a cryo balloon, hopefully within the first minute, you get delay, delay, and then isolation. When you, and then you have to leave it there for about three minutes, it has to thaw and move around. For PFA, you press that button and those signals disappear. And it's quite impressive how quick it is, how you can easily manipulate the catheter. I would say just the overall, uh, stress during the procedure of worrying about collateral injury and speed is, is much different. The risk of phrenic nerve injury and esophageal injury in general are quite low, but there's a lot of things we do during the procedure to mitigate that risk, whether it's measuring the temperature of the esophagus, pacing the phrenic nerve. These things might be obviated with the availability of, of PFA, might make the procedures shorter, might allow for these procedures to be done more easily without general anesthesia. So the ability to quickly and safely perform at least pulmonary vein isolation with pulse field ablation is very exciting. But the real question is, have the companies who are developing this really been able to demonstrate the durability of these lesions? So there is a concern that you can deliver a pulse, make the tissue electrically quiet, but that that tissue will recover over time. So durability, I think, is really the key issue. I'm hopeful that there will be at least adequate durability and that over time it'll become even better. So yeah, there are many companies developing pulse field ablation platforms, whether it's new catheters or catheters they've already had coming up with a recipe that can be that can be used. For me, I mean, it's interesting because there's a lot of things that have come out in EP that we get enthusiastic about, and then that enthusiasm wanes over time. You start hearing about major complications or you start hearing about complete inefficacy. And the fact that the enthusiasm for this energy source or this new idea at EP has persisted to me is is an important clue that this is going to be around. 
Right. So what's really interesting is the the overall safety profile. I mean, when typically when I talk to patients in clinic about choosing between either a, a hybrid and isolated catheter ablation or surgery, I always emphasize how safe an endocardial catheter first step may be. I mean, we're talking less than 1% major complication. We're talking about less than one in a thousand fistula or, or phrenic nerve injury or something like that. I mean, extremely safe. And to think that PFA might even be safer <laughs> yeah. is, is kind of a, is, is an awesome concept. And right, we'll, we'll figure out in 12 to 18 months kind of how, how long these, these last. But it seems like as we get safer and safer and safer with these endocardial strategies, that for the patient, shoot, that's not a bad way to at least try. If if you're going in, even if you have complex AFib and you're in, you can get PFA essentially with negligible zero complication risk. I mean, it just seems like it's it's such an opportunity for patients to to at least go endocardial first, even if they have these really complex AFibs. Yeah, well, I think in the 2000s we really focused on how to get pulmonary vein isolation. We were focused on medically refractory, highly symptomatic paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The next decade, we really were focusing on expanding the indications to persistent. What were the strategies for persistent? Uh, Currently, we don't have much data beyond uh, pulmonary vein isolation that's proven to be effective, but we're seeing things with ligament of Marshall, vein of Marshall, alcohol injection, the convergent procedure, things that haven't proven to be effective are electrical isolation, left atrial appendage, targeting scar based on MRI imaging. So I think in the next decade, uh, the focus is going to be on how do we start going after longstanding persistent atrial fibrillation, lowering our threshold for patients that perhaps are not symptomatic, but we can demonstrate improved outcomes in patients who have no symptoms, either uh, reducing the likelihood of developing heart failure, reducing the risk of stroke, reducing hospitalizations. And we've already moved, I think, to expanding the indications to more first-line therapy. When patients tell us they don't want to take flecainide when they're 50 years old, we used to kind of push them in that direction. I think at this point, a lot of us are comfortable offering patients who don't want to take an antirhythmic drug catheter ablation as first-line therapy, not, not meaning after their first episode of AFib, but once they have reached a point where a rhythm control approach is, is thought to be helpful. Right. And there's there's one talk that I saw on on this year's brochure that I'm I'm really looking forward to. And that's from Cybel Carr. Yeah. And so he's been he's scheduled to talk about kind of novel endocardial left atrial closure yes. uh, systems. When I was at ISLA, I guess it was earlier this year, he kind of gave us a, a sneak preview of some of these devices. I'm really looking forward to that. I mean, I, it, some of these devices coming out are, are pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think they've gotten a lot better. We were involved in the very early renditions of the Watchman device in their clinical trials. So mm-hmm. the Watchman Flex has been a great advance, but we now have the Amulet Flex. We have the AtriClip. So there's always room to make these better to reduce device-related thrombi, for example, and, and leaks that we still potentially have problems with. Right. And the other thing you mentioned about asymptomatic patients, I had Jared, Dr. Jared Bunch on it last yeah. month or so, and we talked to this risk of younger folks having dementia with asymptomatic AFib and how that kind of increases the risk. No, there's definitely that that conversation that happens with, with younger folks who not only do they not want to be on medication, but they, they didn't necessarily want to move forward with treatment because they otherwise feel okay. 
But then yeah. you start talking to them about some of these other risks, dementia and things like that, you know, it really changes the whole conversation and the whole kind of algorithm. You know, you say, look, we can keep you on meds, we can keep you on anticoagulation, but this truly may not be as asymptomatic as you would otherwise think. Yeah. No, as the technology advances, whether it's PFA or other technologies, we're going to start, I think, expanding the indications and consideration for, for who's likely to benefit from an ablation procedure. Absolutely. The other the other article that's been getting a lot of press recently is is the whole decaf space. Can I just pick your brains on that? How do how do you think those results are going to change practice? Well, the decaf showed us that if your strategy is to do pulmonary vein isolation and then want to do something more, particularly for patients with persistent AF, you can you could hypothetically target scar that's identified with MRI. So the challenge in that field has been number one. The ability to reproducibly identify that scar on MRI, it's very thin tissue. It's not always reproducible at all hospitals to be able to image left atrial scar. That's step one. That would be a requirement to even make this approach valid. And step two is, well, if you know where the scar is, then how do you ablate it? Do you just give a couple lesions? Do you give 10 lesions? Do you put a cryo balloon on top of it? And that trial was a negative trial, and I think they were very honest about it in their publication, which was, I think, very well received, that this was an approach that doesn't work, but we learned a lot of other things. And, and one thing that I think is clear to me is the ability to image scar in the left atrium. So it may be hard, sorry, post-ablation scar, so ablation lesion scar, dense scar, that seems to be easier to image. And as we think of and talk about different pulse field ablation strategies. The beauty of some of these companies is that they brought patients back for a redo procedure and demonstrated durability. That's not really a practical thing to do, even from a research side, particularly in the United States, to bring patients back just to map their, their left atrium. But if we could come up with ways to determine durability non-invasively, what maybe with MRI, that might be a surrogate endpoint for different PFA tools. Right. And it made me think of the whole sub-xiphoid posterior wall isolation hybrid strategy, kind of how, how do you think that will be changed with kind of decaf? Do you think that changes the way we kind of think about the sub-xiphoid? No, I think the, so the, I think the beauty of this sub-xiphoid epicardial ablation approach is the recognition that a lot of our endocardial ablation lesions are not transmural or at least there's some epicardial sparing of the ablation that we do. We may see no voltage in the posterior wall. So the ability of the surgeon to ablate the entire epicardial posterior left atrium, that's an anatomical approach. I, would, I don't think that the results of decaf would have any bearing on my opinion of that approach. I think what is potentially going to be a threat to that, that approach is the probability that pulse field ablation or other ultra-low cryo techniques are going to make very transmural safe lesions. They're going to obviate the need to get in the pericardial space to do ablation. Gotcha. Now, there are there are other structures we, we talk about. The one thing that I've started to figure out more and more, maybe there are some epicardial structures that aren't quite the same thing as the endocardial kind of counterparts. Like one thing, for example, is when we look at the epicardial ligament of Marshall, yeah. it seems to be a very different structure than the endocardial kind of vein of Marshall. There's other, we've all kind of talked about it at different conferences, these epiendo bridges kind of over by the right superior pulmonary vein. So hopefully we still have opportunities to, to work together and yeah. to, to treat these complex AF. 
Well, I think the option for a a surgeon who's in the pericardial space to close the appendage while they're there is a big advantage. That's not something that people currently readily do. It, It may come to that at some point, but to do a catheter ablation at the same time as an appendage closure, I've Personally, I've only done that once. It was a complicated patient who really, that was the only way they would agree to it. So high risk of bleeding. We did a cryo balloon and we put in a a watchman device to close the appendage. And she's actually done very well, but there's a lot of reasons why it's not a good idea to combine those two. And there's also no real billing support for that. Sure. And then last year, Dr. Whitlock gave a great talk on the Laos 3 paper, and he's going to be back this year too, which which with, I'm sure, an update of how kind of Laos 3 has changed the landscape of left atrial ices, at least epicardially. Yeah. Well, Laos 3, I think, demonstrated that closing the appendage surgically in patients who are undergoing cardiac surgery who have a history of AF and are at high risk of stroke, closing the appendage itself reduces the risk of stroke. And the other lessons were that a majority of those patients were still on anticoagulation. So that's been a question we all struggle with is a patient who's had, let's say, a, a mitral valve and their appendage closed or a maze and an appendage closed, should they stop their anticoagulation? And I think the current, even Dr. Whitlock's advice, and most of us feel like if possible, they should remain on anticoagulation. It makes us more comfortable if they develop a contraindication, but they should probably still remain on anticoagulation. And then that raises kind of this other mindset for appendage closure percutaneously. Should we close the appendage in patients who are high risk of stroke and still leave them on anticoagulation, uh, as one of my colleagues called it, a belt and suspenders approach? Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's, I would say it's definitely changed the conversation I'm having with patients in clinic, because I used to be very much in favor of managing the left atrial with epicardial device and then doing an echo in three months, making sure everything looks good or a CT and then taking them off anticoagulation. And now it's a more kind of nuanced conversation where if they've had a prior stroke, if they have a high CHADS VAS score, I definitely talk to them more about, hey, maybe we'll just keep you on some low dose anticoagulation. So it's it's definitely changed kind of how how I talk to patients about anticoagulation after left atrial closure. Yeah. Well, I think we all, our expectations for closure are very high. So with new techniques in the clip, it's really changed the game of how many patients have complete closure post-cardiac surgery. Absolutely. I want to finish up with this, your training program. We've just touched on several topics, but it seems like the whole field of EP, surgical management of complex AF, is blowing up right now. I mean, we've had so many amazing studies come out in the in the last few years. How much of your trainees are seeing this kind of teamwork that's going on with, with EP, with surgery? Are they spending time in the OR? Are the surgeons coming down to the lab and spending time there? I mean, this must be a lot to get across to the trainees who are just going through residency and fellowship. Well, our general cardiology fellows do a cardiac surgical rotation, and they're often in the OR. So I think that from the get-go here, the general cardiology fellows get a lot of exposure to cardiac surgery. Our EP fellows don't spend dedicated time in the, in the OR. Part of it's just been time. This year is the first year we've expanded our EP fellowship from four to five fellows. Despite really significant growth in our procedural volume over the last 12 years, we've continued to have four fellows. And part of it's maintaining their surgical and procedural numbers. 
but we now will have five fellows. It gives them the opportunity now to do things like this, more time for research, more time maybe to go to the operating room, more time to go spend in the pediatric EP clinic with your EP lab, which is right across the street, I can see. Okay. Uh, so, and, and to spend more time in our, our, we have a large animal basic model of atrial fibrillation with Dr. Rishi Aurora and Anna Feniger. They're always interested in having some of our EP fellows. So in general, I think those opportunities will grow. Yes, our cardiac surgeons will come to the lab after a conversion procedure to see what the maps look like so that we can learn. And if they're not immediately available, we'll send them the images of the maps prior to our doing our part. We do it in a staged fashion. We don't do same-day convergent cases. We have done it in a staged fashion. Sure. And that, that allows them... And honestly, we've had pretty good support from, from industry. They're, they're able to kind of uh, facilitate that communication that the patient's coming back for a, for a catheter procedure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Not, not to date myself, but I was in training almost 10 years ago. And to, to sit here today and think about the amount of subject matter that's grown and to have to master that content in the same amount of time just seems wild. I mean, there are so many things folks are doing nowadays that they weren't doing 10 years ago that fellows are going to have to learn so they can get out and, and be part of the, the workforce. It's just well, my uh, training was far more than 10 years ago, <laughs> but I'll tell, I'll tell the fellows some days that all the cases we did today didn't exist when I was a fellow, right? There was no AF ablation. There was no leadless pacing. There was no appendage closure. There were no epicardial procedures on and on. But I, I think that is a point to them that when you finish your training, you're going to have to stay current. And my generation kind of graduated, finishing EP fellowship in the mid-90s, about half of my colleagues adopted AF ablation and about half didn't. And it was, I think, a good example of how important that is. Transeptal catheterization was not even in the purview of EP at the time. It was when we needed to go transeptal for WPW, we'd have to call someone from the cath lab and so, yeah, things have changed a lot, but you're right. The fellows have a lot more to learn. It's now a two-year fellowship, and the fellows have to do three years of medicine, three years of cardiology, two years of EP. That's eight years of training. So finally, we have some progress where the third year of cardiology will be optional to start your EP fellowship to reduce it to seven years. And we're part of some experiment, I think, with the ACGME, where one of our EP fellows is going to start EP during their third year officially, not kind of informal. Oh, okay. So the cardiac surgeons now have direct pathways out of medical school residency programs. Right. Uh, EP has to compete for high quality trainees by making it a little bit more manageable. Eight years of training after medical school is just not, not, it's just not feasible. Right, right. No, you're exactly right. It even kind of shines more emphasis on meetings like CAST-AF. I mean, fellows, residents can come to a meeting like this, get all the high yield information in a year and a half or in a day and a half, sorry, kind of find out what's what's going on in the field, who the experts are, possible mentors they can reach out to in the future. Right. So yeah, I mean, I'm this- excited about this meeting for the trainees as well. On top of that, we have three fellows programs surrounding the meeting. We have a fellows program supported by a different company focused on different themes on the Thursday night before CAST AF, on the Friday morning before CAST AF, and then on the Sunday morning following CAST AF. Absolutely. And so do you want to just talk about how fellows, residents, possible folks who want to come to the meeting can can find out about the CAST AF meeting? Well, we sent out a lot of emails with the link. You can find it on social media. The Cardiovascular Institute has tweeted it. There's a link that can directly take you to the site to register. We've tried to make it as affordable as possible for trainees. 
And we're trying to get support from industry to help cover some of the travel and hotel costs on certain days of the meeting. So yeah, or you can go to my Twitter page. I'm on Twitter and I've been retweeting that. So I think that there are many avenues to get registered. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. So again, for everyone who's listening, it's the CAST AF meeting, C-A-S-T-A-F. It's August 26th and 27th at the Radisson Blue Hotel in Chicago, Illinois. And we, we we hope to see you there. I know Dr. Obviously, Dr. Bradley Knight will be there as a, as a course director. I will be there as well. And we're we're hoping to to see everyone there at this meeting. We're super excited about it. So, Dr. Knight, is there anything else you'd like to to leave our listeners with? No, but thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on your podcast. I will just add in terms of getting registered, if you just Google CAST AF 2022, you'll find a link. Awesome. So thank awesome. you again for the opportunity. Have a great week. All right. Thanks, Dr. Knight. We'll see you soon. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcast and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.